Good morning. Let us stand together here from the Word of God. Psalm 103, these familiar words, be encouraged. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And just to name a few, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is the psalmist's call to us. It is our call to our own souls to remember these things. And it is a call to the world to bring peace and forgiveness and a hope yet to come through the gospel. So let us rejoice. Let us clap together. Let us rejoice together in our God and King.
Yes, that is our hope to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name here today. You can be seated. Welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. My name is Drew. I'm the music pastor here. If you're visiting with us today, you are welcome. And if you have any questions about anything you hear in our service or anything about our church, uh, we would love to hear from you. You can email us, info at dscabq.com, or you can come up and meet one of the pastors after the service right up front. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to uh, get to know you and how we can serve you best today. We'll have a couple of quick reminders, so listen quickly. One, Gospel Man Seminar is this Saturday. Today is the last day to sign up, so I would encourage you men to sign up for that. It'll be a a sweet time of discipleship and fellowship with other men in the church. Nathan Sherman from Christ Church will be there teaching us. Um, I'll be there, and I would look forward to uh, seeing you there as well, so sign up for that today. Members meeting, members of Desert Springs Church. Uh, The last Wednesday night of this month at 6.30, we'll have our members meeting here. We need you to RSVP for that uh, with uh, limited space. And it's also our annual Q&A with the elders. So if you have any questions, um, and I said in the first service, I know that this year hasn't had a whole lot going on, so I don't know if you guys will have any questions. But um, if you have any questions for us, email that to elders at dscabq.com. And we'll uh, try to address as many of those questions as we can. But members, if I can speak to this for a moment and just tell you how important this work is that we do at the members' meeting. I would say that the the votes that we cast at this members' meeting this Wednesday are far more eternally significant than any vote you will cast on November 3rd. So this is part of who we are and what we do as a church. This is part of our job as members of the body of Desert Springs. So sign up for that. Be there and look forward to that. And membership implies baptism. And we're going to celebrate baptism today. And we can anticipate that together. And as we do that, I was was thinking of 1 Corinthians 12. And how baptism is a picture of the one being joined to the many or to the body. So here Paul from 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for the diversity of your body. And we ask ask now that during this service that you would work. And where there is division, you would bring unity. And where there is doubt, you would bring security. And where there is uncertainty, bring clarity. By your spirit, through your son, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us stand together and continue in prayer through song. 
every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious song sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Hitherto thy love has blessed me, you have brought me to this place, and I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, need to rescue from danger interposed his precious blood yes he did by grace alone From sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. And then, when clothed in blood washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. And come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransom soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. That's your hope. Say amen. You can be seated. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning the way that you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, seated above all powers and rulers, sovereign in your majesty, may your name be honored as holy. May all our hearts acknowledge and worship you as entirely different from us, perfect in all your attributes, as alone just and righteous in all your ways. 
Our Father, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We set our hope on and long for the day when you make everything new, when our mortal bodies are raised to immortality just like Christ's was when you raised him from the tomb. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. But we also pray for your kingdom to be manifest now as it has already come in part. Help us to live like citizens of heaven. Help us to demonstrate your holiness to the world. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us in everything we do to glorify you. Our Father, give us today our daily bread. Please provide all that we need to live and to care for one another. Lord, for those who need jobs or financial provision, we pray that you would provide it for them. To those who are in need of healing, we pray that you would work mightily to restore their bodies. We pray especially for the recent increase in cases of COVID-19. We pray that you would protect your church from infection and to help us care for the sick. And God, most of all, we pray earnestly that you would bring this difficult season to an end. We pray that you would, through whatever means you choose to use, bring about the lifting of the restrictions on our state, especially so that we can worship together as we want. But our Father, we pray your will be done. God, we pray that you would forgive us our debts. We confess that we have sinned against you and against others in our thoughts, words, and deeds, and by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Lord, thank you for Jesus, in whose name alone there is forgiveness of sins. Please lead us again to the mercy and grace afforded to us in Jesus Christ. Give us a greater understanding of the forgiveness we have received in the gospel. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who are being baptized this morning, who are professing this same forgiveness to the world, that their sins have been washed away. We pray that they would keep themselves in your love, for you are able to keep them from stumbling and to present them blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. And our Father, as you have forgiven us our debts, we pray that we would also forgive our debtors. Help us to forgive others as you have forgiven us. Use our time this morning, especially our sermon that meditates on this idea. Lord, help us to this end that we would be a forgiving people because we have been forgiven much. Our Father, bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us stand and consider our God's great faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning.
faithful. Let's turn now to receive some new mercies from his word. You can be seated. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 18. And while you're turning there, if I haven't met you before, my name is Chase. I'm on staff here at the church. And if you have been here for a while, you say, man, Matthew 18 again? This guy likes to talk about church discipline a lot, I guess. And I do. I think it's just so important. But we're actually looking uh, at the, the passages that immediately follow the famous text on church discipline, Matthew eighteen fifteen to 20. We're going to look in a parable that immediately follows this idea of going to turn our wandering brothers back. So it's, it's right, it's fitting in Matthew chapter 18. If you read it, you'll see two themes that emerge from that whole chapter. One is the seriousness of sin. And how Christians should take sin with, with a, a right measure of weight and how we deal with it. But then the other side, the other point that comes up in Matthew chapter 18 is, is God's grace and forgiveness. That even as we turn our brothers and sisters back, we are reconciled to them in full forgiveness. And this text today is, is a beautiful picture. One of my favorite parables in the whole Bible about this theme of forgiveness. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 all the way through the end of the chapter uh, what is that, verse 35. So Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Let me read these verses to you, and then we'll hear what God has to say to us from it. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said, 
Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused. And went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear your word, please help my words and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So a senior aide to President Harry Truman once told a story. He had a meeting with the president, and as he was on his way into the Oval Office, he noticed sitting in the waiting area was the president of Chase Bank, a very powerful, influential man. The aide went in, and he had the meeting with the president, and then he left, and then 45 minutes later, he came back for another scheduled meeting at the Oval Office, and he noticed that the president of Chase Bank was still sitting right there on the bench. And so he went into the president and he said, Mr. President, I just want to make sure you knew that the president of Chase Bank has been in the waiting area for over an hour. And Harry Truman looked at him and he said, when I was a senator from Missouri, that man kept me waiting in his waiting room for nearly two hours. He's got 37 minutes left. When it comes to the wrongs done to us by others, we can often be like that, can't we? Keeping an exact account of how someone else has hurt us and just hoping for the chance to pay them back. But Jesus commends to us a better way. Not of vengeance, but of forgiveness. And our passage this morning is one of the most beautiful expressions of that better way, rooted where it must be in the forgiveness of God. So the bulk of our passage today is a parable, as we'll see, but it starts in verses 21 to 22 with an important introduction. The Apostle Peter comes to Jesus with a question about forgiveness. So verses 21 and 22 are our introduction, a question about forgiveness. Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now that's an interesting number. The rabbis of the day, the religious leaders at the time of Jesus, they said that three was enough times. That you could forgive someone three times, you must forgive someone three times, but after that, 
you don't have to forgive them anymore. But at this point, Peter's starting to get it. Even up to this point in the book of Matthew, Jesus has already said a lot about forgiveness and he has proven again and again to be more forgiving, more generous, and more merciful than you'd ever expect. Certainly more so than the religious leaders of the day. So Peter thinks he's starting to get it and so he shoots high. Not three times, Lord, but seven times. What does Jesus say? Verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. He just blows up all of Peter's categories. And that's number two, 77. It's really interesting. In one way, it's just a funny play on words with what Peter said. Not seven times, 77 times. But Jesus is actually making an Old Testament allusion when he uses this number. In the book of Genesis chapter four, we get the story of Lamech, who was born in the line of Cain. And in the story of Genesis, Lamech sort of represents the epitome of human fallenness. And in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, Lamech says this, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And that's the world, isn't it? Someone hurts us, we want to hurt them back even more. But we are not of this world, Jesus says. So rather than avenging ourselves 77 times, we forgive 77 times. And of course, Jesus is not saying that the number is literally 77, right? You get that? He's not saying like if somebody sins against you 78 times, well, then they're out of luck. What is Jesus saying? Peter, there are no limits. There is no number. There are no limits to our forgiveness because there are no limits to God's forgiveness. And that's the key. Jesus says that in order to understand how we are to forgive others, we need to understand how God has forgiven us. And so to help us understand, he tells us this story, this parable that's a word picture. And the parable breaks up into two important parts that together make one point about the kingdom of heaven. As God has forgiven us, so we forgive others. That's the main idea of this passage. As God forgives us, so we forgive others. That's how this text breaks down. So verses 23 to 27. As God forgives us, Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents is a lot of money. It's hard to convert ancient currencies into today's currency, but one estimate puts that at about $7 billion in today's money. And verse 25 says the servant could not pay. And I wonder how that happens, right? How do you misspend $7 billion? Okay, clearly this servant is some kind of a manager or maybe a vice regent to the king, but still, $7 billion? Maybe he had just been incredibly foolish, squandered that money. Or maybe he had been disobedient, stealing the money. Either way, whatever it was, it's time to pay the bill. This is the day of reckoning. Verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
So I did some more math, and I could be wrong about all of this. I went to art school, so I'm not great at math. <laughs> but I think, if, if my math is right, uh, that, that this payment, $7 billion, would take someone earning an average U.S. salary more than 100,000 years to pay off. 100,000 years is what this servant owes. He could never pay that off. That might as well be an eternal punishment. And that's the point. Remember what Jesus is saying. This isn't a story about a king and a servant. This is a story about us and God and the nature of our sin. This is not the only place that the Bible talks about our sin like a debt. Just like this servant, we have all foolishly mishandled, squandered good gifts that God has given to us. Our time, our money, our talents. We'll have to reckon with God for the misuse of his goods. More than that, we've actively broken God's commandments, haven't we? God's law. And just like in our own society, breaking a law comes with a fine that must be paid. And the more serious the law that was broken, the more significant the crime that was committed, the higher the fine that needs to be paid. So it is with God for all of our disobedience. There is no higher crime than disobeying our creator God. We all owe a debt. And it's really even worse than that because the Bible says that every human being, man, woman, and child, has inherited the debts of Adam. Our first father, when he sinned. So not only are we like this unfaithful servant, but we're also like the wife and the children that are having to suffer for the disobedience of the head of their family. And the point is this. Every one of us, no matter who you are, has an unpayable debt of sin. And just like this servant, there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day when we die, or when Jesus comes back, that we will stand before the judgment seat of God and we will give an account for everything that we have done in this life. And we will realize in that moment that there is no hiding our debts from our master and that there is eternal an eternal punishment that must be paid. For us, the punishment that our debt of sin deserves is imprisonment in hell forever away from the presence of God in a place where there is eternal darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what do we do? What can we do? The only thing we can do is the same thing this servant does. We get on our knees and we beg for mercy. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees imploring the king, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. It struck me as I was studying this that, that what he is suggesting is just a form of legalism. He's bargaining with God. God, I'll, I'll pay you back. But we know that there is no amount of good that we can do to counteract the wrongs that we have done. There is no way that we can pay back the eternal debt that we deserve. Certainly not in one lifetime, but even if we had a million lifetimes. Look at how the king responds. Verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. He released him and forgave the debt. Don't skip over this. 
Jesus says, this is the kingdom of heaven. The king is standing there with his foolish, disobedient servant, groveling, making promises that he can't keep. And the king just looks at him with pity. What a beautiful word. That could literally be translated, he's moved with compassion. It's the same word that Matthew uses again and again to describe Jesus's own heart towards people. When Jesus is out and he sees people that are sick, when he looks out and he sees people that are hungry, when he looks out and he sees people that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew says Jesus has compassion on them. It's a word that expresses deep emotion and concern that Jesus cares about them. And so he reaches out and he meets their needs because he loves them. He has pity on them. And this king looks at this servant the same way with deep emotion. But not anger, not contempt, not disgust. How? With love, with compassion, with pity. Verse 27 says, the king releases the servant and forgives him. All of his debt. Forgiveness. When was the last time you thought about what forgiveness really means? It means the debt is completely taken away. When God forgives us of our sins, that's it. They're gone. God no longer sees them. He no longer even thinks about them. Psalm 103, which is our call to worship this morning, in verses 11 to 12, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And then listen to this, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he take your sin away from you. Remember the promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 34. God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that so comforting? He doesn't remember them. So when God says, I forgive you, what he's not saying is, I forgive you, but I'll never forget what you did. He's not saying, I forgive you. But as soon as you screw up again, out comes the list. He reminds you of all of the things that you have done. No, he doesn't even remember them. It's like it never happened. Forgiveness. And Jeremiah says that it's on that basis that God makes a new covenant with us, a new commitment to us, a new relationship. There's nothing between us and God. It's not awkward with God because of our sin. Our relationship is not estranged because of our sin. No, it's gone. And God says, I want a new reconciled relationship with you. You will forever be my beloved children and I will forever be your father. So that even if we sin again, which we will, we don't want to, but we're not in heaven yet. So even if we sin again in our weakness, we can come to him again. On the basis of this new covenant, we can ask for forgiveness and he will always forgive you. 77 times. Remember Exodus 34 verse 6 where God appears to Moses and describes who he is in his essence. Do you remember what he says? 
Yahweh. Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's our God. Amen? That's our King. He will always forgive those that plead for forgiveness. But consider the costs. This forgiveness costs us nothing. We don't bring anything to God. We cannot pay God back. We cannot work our way back into God's favor. It costs us nothing, but it costs God. In this parable, the king, forgiving this servant's debts, did not just magically make that money reappear in the account. That money was lost. And this was not taxpayer dollars that we're talking about here, okay? It's one thing to spend somebody else's money. This was the king's own money. And when he showed pity, when he forgave this servant, that money was lost. This forgiveness was incredibly costly. And the same is true for us. Our forgiveness, when God says he takes our sin as far away as the east is from the west, that doesn't mean that our sin just vanishes into the ether. That would be unjust. They cost God something. They cost God his only begotten son. This is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son. Gave. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14 say that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's good news. But how was that debt canceled? Paul says by setting it aside and nailing it to the cross. Our record of debt did not just disappear. God the Father transferred that record of debt from our account into the account of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Christ came to live as a man and in that bore every sin that we have committed. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ bore in himself all of the iniquities that we have committed and all of the sins that we will commit from this day moving forward. All the debt that we owe was laid on Jesus Christ. And then he was nailed to the cross and died. Died for the legal demand that our debt of sin deserved eternal punishment there on the cross. For all of our sin, all of our foolishness, even the sin of Adam, as Christ was the better Adam. I was struck that the Apostle Peter, the one that started this whole thing, that asked the question in the first place, in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, he said that we were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood. Of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter understood how valuable the blood of Jesus was. And God gave that to you so that you could be ransomed, so that your sins could be forgiven. Jesus died on that cross, he was taken down, 
and they laid him in a tomb. And then three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead because the payment had been approved. Sufficient funds. And so now, when we stand before the judgment seat of God and God brings out that record of debt, that account of all of the sins that we have committed in our life, there at the very bottom, written in Christ's own precious blood, it will say, paid in full. Enter into the joy of your master. That's good news, amen? That's what we call the gospel. Gospel just means good news, and we celebrate that good news, and we offer that good news. Have you had your sins forgiven? You know that you have this record of debt. You know you feel it. There will be a day of reckoning. That's where this parable breaks down. On that day, we won't have a chance to plead with God for mercy, but this day we can if you have not had your sins forgiven, cry out to God for mercy. And he won't look at you with anger. He won't look at you with contempt. He'll look at you with compassion. The way that Jesus looks at someone that's sick that needs to be healed. He will forgive you all of your sins. All you have to do is cry out to him. And you will receive mercy. And if you have received mercy, if you have believed in this good news, you can still go to God that same way. You can still go to God and ask him for forgiveness and he will forgive you even 77 times, even 7 billion times. He doesn't remember your sins anymore. So you quit remembering your sins. He doesn't hold it against you. You don't have to hold it against yourself. He loves you and you are forgiven. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this so good? This is only half the parable. (laughs) And that's what's remarkable about it. This is not the resolution of the story. That's the setup. Remember the question that Jesus is answering. How often should I forgive someone? How forgiving should I be? As I said, the point of this story is that as God forgives us, So we forgive others. The more we can come to appreciate the gospel and the compassion and mercy that God has shown to us in Christ, the more we should and can show compassion and mercy to others. So verses 28 to 35. As God forgives us, so we forgive others. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. You hear how this is parallel? It's almost the exact same wording that the servant used with the king. What should this servant do? He should be compassionate, like the king was compassionate. He should be forgiving, like the king was forgiving. But what does he do? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... 
His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus concludes verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, this is what Jesus is not saying, just so we're not confused. Jesus is not saying that if you don't forgive someone, he'll take away your salvation. The only reason that someone goes to hell is because they have not had the debt of their sin paid for by Jesus on the cross. But what Jesus is saying is that if you are harboring this kind of unforgiveness in your heart and in your life, if you are this unmerciful, then there is every likelihood that you have not actually understood the gospel in the first place. Which is to say that you may not really have been forgiven yourself because unforgiveness is incompatible with the gospel. No one who has really been forgiven of their eternal debt of sin could ever respond like this wicked servant. Is there someone indebted to you? Is there someone who has sinned against you and you are holding that sin against them? Is there someone that has hurt you? Jesus says, forgive them from your heart because you have been forgiven. And someone will say, man, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know how hard that would be. You don't know how bad this person has hurt me. And I may not be able to appreciate the pain that you have experienced at the hands of someone else, but Jesus does. Let me point out an important detail in this parable, one that I think people often get wrong. I'll hear people tell this story and they say, the servant goes out from the king and then in verse 28, he finds a guy that owes him like a couple of bucks. It's like the servant's just getting upset over nothing. But 100 denarii is actually a lot of money. At least it would be for me. In today's currency, that's about $12,000. That's no small sum. That's why this servant's first impulse is to choke this guy. He needs revenge. He wants justice. Because sometimes people can hurt us really bad, can't they? I don't know and would not even pretend to know everything that people in this room have gone through. But I have been around long enough and especially been serving in ministry long enough to know that people can commit incredible evil against other people. Jesus doesn't use a small number. He uses a big number. He knows. But what is $12,000 compared to $7 billion? That's the point of this parable. Jesus wants us to remember that no one owes us a greater debt than the debt that we owe God. And God did not exact justice on us. God had compassion on us. He saw us in our weakness. He saw us in our need. And he poured out that justice on his son so that we could be forgiven. And if God has forgiven us our debt like that, then we must forgive others. It would be unfair. It would be unjust, sisters and brothers, for us to gladly receive the grace of God and Jesus Christ and then withhold it from other people. That's incompatible with the gospel. 
But not only that, I think this parable teaches us that, that we actually can forgive other people their debts. We can forgive other people, but not in ourselves. I can't imagine what Peter's face looked like when Jesus told him, Peter, not seven, but 77 times. 77 times? How is that even possible? But with God, all things are possible. This is about the kingdom of heaven. And that same God, who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that same God, your God, lives in you. Is working you into his image. The same Jesus who, when he was being murdered on the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That same great high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weakness, Hebrews says, who is tempted in every way like we were, but without sin, who says to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and ask for help in time of need. This same Jesus is working in you by his word and by his Holy Spirit to make you more like him. So when you say, I don't know how I could ever forgive this person. Well, Jesus says, I know. And you know what? I know firsthand how bad this hurts. I know what it is to be abused. I know what it is to be forsaken. I know what it is to be rejected. I know what it is to be sinned against. But the forgiveness of God is limitless. And I'm in you. I'm with you. Let me help you. Let me help you show compassion. Let me help you to love. Let me help you to forgive like you've been forgiven. It's possible. Not in ourselves, but through God who is forgiving and who has forgiven us so much. It's possible. But what does it mean? What does it mean to really forgive someone from the heart? I love that Jesus says that. Forgive them from the heart. I think, again, this is an area where we can be so confused in our culture. I know that I have been confused about this because we have tended to think about forgiveness much in the same way that we think about love, which is in largely emotional terms. When it comes to love, we treat love like something that just sort of comes upon you and then it can leave just as quickly. You fall into love and then you fall out of love and we really don't have any control over whether or not we feel love. But if any of you have been married for some time, you know that that's not really how it works. That sometimes love comes with very strong emotions, but not always. But that doesn't change what love is, which is not a feeling, it's an action. Love is a commitment that you make to someone else, maybe even in spite of your feelings, a commitment that you're going to seek the best of that person even when it costs you something. Forgiveness is the same way. Forgiveness is not a feeling. And I think this is where so many people struggle. They say, I just, I just can't forgive that person. But what they mean is, I just don't feel like I've forgiven that person. But it's not about how you feel about that person. Forgiveness is not determined by our feelings. It's just like love, an active process. And sometimes it's very costly. To forgive someone means that you might, for the first time, have to acknowledge some pain that you've felt. It means letting go of your pride. And it means entrusting yourself to the justice of God. It's costly. But so is our forgiveness. So when we say, I forgive you, 
We're not trying to conjure up some kind of feeling. We're making a promise. We really are making a few promises. And they're all rooted in the promises that God has made to us in the new covenant. And I say, you say to someone, I forgive you. That's not always going to be able to to happen. In some circumstances, that just may not be possible. Maybe this person is no longer alive. Or maybe this person has not sought out your forgiveness, has not repented. Or maybe to even approach that person in any kind of way would be terribly unwise. But even then, if there's not an opportunity to tell that person with your lips, I forgive you, I think there is Jesus calling us here what some have called a willingness to forgive that you cultivate in your heart. That you're still making the same promises. You're not holding the debt against that person such that if they were to walk into the room and ask for your repentance, you would be willing right there in that moment to grant that repentance. So either way, whether it's with your lips or just in your heart, when you say, I forgive you, you're making some promises. And let me just say, forgiveness is is terribly complex. I know there are so many different scenarios and exceptions to all of this. There's no way we could cover this all in one morning. But I do, to close, want to give you three promises that we make when we say, I forgive you. Three promises when we say, I forgive you. First, I promise not to think about your sin anymore. When you forgive someone, you make that promise. I'm not going to think about your sin anymore. Because remember the new covenant. I will remember their sins no more. And God can do that perfectly. When God says, I won't remember your sins anymore, that's it. He doesn't have to practice. It's just done. We're not the same way. And so if someone has sinned against you, someone has hurt you, that's where the battle is. It's going to come back up into your mind. But when you have committed to forgiving someone, you are committing that when it comes up into my mind, I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to go through that argument one more time in my head. I'm not going to think again, rehearse what they did to me and get all worked up and bitter and angry all over again. No, I'm not going to think about it. And it's a fight. But when it comes up, you say, no, 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 no. I'm going to put that away and I'm going to think about something else. And you know what you should think about? The forgiveness that you've received in Jesus Christ. And you just think about that until, until you move on. Second promise, whenever possible, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our relationship. Whenever possible, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our relationship. And I say whenever possible, like I said, sometimes there are sins that are so grievous or relationships that are so harmful that it just can never go back the same way. That's okay. And if you're in a situation right now and you think, I don't know if this is that, I don't know what wisely trying to reconcile with this person looks like, we want to help you. We want to give you counsel in that. For instance, it would not be right at all for you in forgiving someone who has abused you to assume that that means you have to go back into an abusive situation. That's not what I'm saying. That's why I say whenever possible. But when it is possible, and I think most times it is, I think most times the debts that we're holding against each other are rather petty. And when it is possible, we say, I won't let this stand between us or affect our relationship because God hasn't. God worked a new relationship. 
God said, I will be completely reconciled to you. There will be nothing between us. And this may be incredibly costly for you, but what you are promising when you say, I forgive you, is I'm not going to let it be awkward. I'm not just going to let this relationship fizzle and go hang out with some other people. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do the work of addressing with you what's been happening here. I'm going to do the work of setting up boundaries if necessary. I'm going to do the work of of reconciling with you so that maybe our relationship would be even stronger than it was before. I'm going to work at that. I'm going to fight for that. That's my commitment. That's my promise. Last promise. I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. Have you been there? You get in a fight with somebody and then the list comes out? You know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, well 10 years ago you did this. Or I remember you said this that one time and you always do this. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. This goes along with not thinking about their sins anymore. When you forgive someone, it's off the ledger. God nailed your record of debt to the cross. It does not come up again. So when you say, I forgive you, you are committing to the same thing. You don't bring it up with that person and you don't talk about it with other people. You don't gossip about it. You don't slander because to do so is to actually seek vengeance against that person. You get that? When you bring out the list, you are maybe not trying to choke this person like in the parable. You're not making them sit on a bench for two hours. But you're trying to hurt them. That's your little way of trying to exact justice. That's your way of trying to set the scales back and balance. But that's not your job. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This can be one of the hardest things about forgiving someone else, especially if they're not a believer, especially if they're not repentant, or especially if they've hurt you really bad. It can just feel like justice is not being served. We all have that desire, right, for for justice, for things to be made right, and it just doesn't feel right to forgive someone like they're being let off the hook? No. Remember how this parable ends. God is just, and he will punish those who deserve punishment. And so you let it go. You entrust justice to God because God is, is just. And even that thought, that thought of coming justice, that thought of eternal punishment in hell for this other person that has hurt you, even that can stir us up to compassion and pity. Do you really want that for them? Even that can, can cause you to turn. Have that same heart that Jesus has. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That doesn't mean that you're granting forgiveness to that person. That's God's job. But as you saying, Lord, even here, I would love to see that they would be forgiven, even they. 
just like I have been forgiven. And, you know, just like our, our brothers and sisters this morning who are getting baptized, I'm so glad that we're following up this parable with baptisms. Because what they're doing is they're standing up and they're professing what we have been talking about, that they have been forgiven. They have done that work of turning to God, pleading to God for forgiveness, asking for his mercy, and they have known how compassionate our God is. And they want to tell all of you about it. And they want to remember it forever. This act of baptism is just standing up and professing what we have been talking about, that they go into the water, they've been buried with Christ. They have died with Christ, which is to say their debt of sin has been paid. And then they come up out of the water and their sins are washed away. Not by the water, but by that appeal for a clean conscience that God grants to them. And they, with Christ, have been raised to walk in newness of life and in that better way, that better way of forgiveness and love. So as we turn to consider this visible, material, tangible demonstration of the gospel, let's pray. God, we praise you for our forgiveness, for forgiveness that was so costly and yet cost us nothing. Lord, we thank you for giving us your son, Jesus, for his precious blood, for his sacrifice on our behalf. Please, God, help us to understand the gospel more deeply, more profoundly. And Lord, please help us to forgive others as you have forgiven us. Give us hearts of compassion and mercy and commitment like you have and help us to trust you in all things. For your glory. Amen. Let us stand and respond. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruin sin to reclaim. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned he stood, sealed my. With his blood, hallelujah, what a Savior, hallelujah, praise to the one whose blood has pardoned me, oh, what a Savior. Spotless Lamb of God was
It is finished was his cry now in heaven say hallelujah. Yes, and amen. You can be seated. My name is Ron Giese. I'm the executive pastor here at Desert Springs Church. I think we'll all remember 2020 as a year of firsts. Uh, This would be the first time, and I hope the last, that I'll do baptisms wearing a mask and gloves. Uh, I feel also like I'm kind of a dark version of the Incredibles. If you remember, they had red bodysuits and gloves and masks. Mine's all black, but we both have a cool logo. Um, And then my final thought before we get to more serious things uh, is that for the first time, you might have had a different sensory experience walking into the worship center, thinking, hey, it smells kind of like an indoor pool in here. I don't recall that. The last baptism service we had. Uh, well, indeed, Ian has bumped up the chlorine level uh, to some, some better levels. And so Drew and I were joking early on this morning that when baptisms are done, maybe I can make an announcement like, hey, anybody that wants to can stick around. If you don't feel like your shower properly cleansed you or disinfected you or sterilized you, come through the waters here of the kind of makeshift Siloam pool at DSC for, for this one day. So we live in, indeed, very odd times and days. Uh, Baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol of Christ's death and his resurrection. It's not just a symbol of that, as wonderful as that is, but Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2 tell us that we have gone through a transformation, God, through salvation, has caused us to die to the old self and has given us new life. We're not saved by baptism, not even a little. Uh, The four coming up now and the five in the first service, uh, it's not like they enter these waters, say, 50% forgiven, and then they come out, wow, now they're 70, 75%, 80%. No, we are forgiven like Chase said, completely and solely on account of Christ because of his payment for our sins on the cross. And us 
receiving that, believing in it, having faith in Jesus. A friend of mine worded it this way, uh, regeneration, meaning forgiveness and the granting of new life, regeneration is related to believing. And baptism, baptism relates to belonging. So these four are here to say, I belong to Christ. And on a second level, I belong to you. We belong to each other. We're part of a spiritual family. So Christians, as you watch, as you observe your brothers and sisters in Christ be baptized this morning, Thank God for his work in them. Remember God's work in you. Remember your own baptism and what it represents. So with that said, let me ask Eric Metzner and Ashley Bowman to come up. Uh, usually here at DSC, we baptize individuals, at least the last year or two. Um, but in this case, these two are both engaged. They're going to be married in 2021, Lord willing. And they're being baptized on the same day. So if somebody's married or about to be married and they're both being baptized, I feel like we shouldn't ask them to split up. Uh, but usually here, we'll see people coming up individually. Eric is a grad student at UNM studying chemical engineering. And uh, one of his favorite verses is from Jeremiah chapter 29, where God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Let me make one request, and that is when Eric finishes and when the other three finish their testimony, let's clap for them. Um, not all of the nine this morning are used to getting up in front of several hundred people live and by video, um, but they've done that at our request uh, as elders, not to put the spotlight on them, but to give credit to their Lord and Savior. So let's encourage them once they finish up their testimony. My name is Eric Metzner. Um, and, and I grew up in a devout Christian family. Um, growing up, though, I, you know, I went to a private Christian school, and there and even at my church, I was bullied quite heavily by uh, the, a lot of the other students. And it really made me think, what's so special about Christ? What's so special about Christianity? And I turned my back on God and my family and Christianity as a whole in the church. Then one day, when I was 17, I locked my keys in my truck. And I had a little multi-tool that had a flathead screwdriver on it. And I was going to try to use that screwdriver to unlock my truck. I've been kind of struggling with and thinking about a lot of, of Christianity and a lot of the tenets of, of Christ. And I just said, God, if you're out there, you will open this door for me. And he did. And he's used that door to open so many others. He opened my eyes to the truth that Jesus Christ died on, our, on the cross for our sins so that we may live forever with him in heaven. And he's been with me ever since through the good times and the bad. And he's given me my wonderful fiance to walk with me as well, to guide me and to grow me in him even more. And he's used my family to show me the love of Christ and the love of God and again, guide me even more towards him. No? It's good. 
Eric, I've got two questions for you, and I'll just have you nod by affirmation. Do you trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation? Mm -hmm. Second, do you acknowledge that Jesus bought you by his blood, that you belong to him, and that you owe him all of your love, your obedience, and your devotion now and forever? Well, based on this affirmation, my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And in just a second, uh, Ashley will come up. Ashley is also a student in the chemical engineering department of UNM. And one of her favorite verses is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, where Paul says that we walk by faith and not by sight. So Ashley says that's a great encouragement to her to trust in God's perfect plan. Hello, my name is Ashley Bowman. Uh, I was not raised in a religious household, but I did have a small amount of knowledge about Jesus. As I grew older, my knowledge about him increased, and I did not, but I did not truly understand what he stood for. Uh, my journey truly began in the fall of 2017, when a friend who had been looking around churches for, to attend and was attending DSC for the first time asked me to come to church with him. This friend also later became my fiancé. I was skeptical at first, having never read the Bible so, or prayed so deeply before. But over time, I learned and began to see the many blessings and words of God throughout my life that were always there, but had never been looked for until now. Over the past three years, I realized that Jesus loved so much so that he died for my sins and has brought me with him in his resurrection. He guides through the good times and carries through the tough times. He never fails to be there. Ashley, same two questions for you. Have you repented of your sins, and do you trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation? And do you acknowledge that Jesus purchased you with his blood, that you belong to him, and that you owe him all of your love, your obedience, and your devotion now and forever? Based on this confession, it's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. <laughs> now let me ask Lauren Jane to come up. Uh, Lauren's got his family here with him. You know, they'll stay in their seats, like I said. Uh, Lauren loves camping and hiking, uh, things in the outdoors, and one of Lauren's favorite verses is also from Jeremiah 29, but a different verse, the one that says, where God says, uh, you will find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. 
my name is Lauren Jane, and um, I grew up attending church with my family every Sunday. One summer during church camp around fourth or fifth grade, I received Christ by confessing my sin, accepting his death on the cross as payment for my sins, and asking him to be the Lord and Savior of my life. God's word says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Throughout my life, I've struggled to accept that being saved is truly a gift from God and that you can't work your way into heaven. As a result, I've spent many years trying to be good enough and failing. During high school, I eventually gave up on trying to be good enough and began doing what I wanted to do, even when I knew it didn't honor or glorify God. I would tell myself that there would always be time to get right with God later on in life. Shortly after this, a friend of mine who was 18 at the time died unexpectedly. Their passing caused me to rededicate my life to my creator and to the sufficiency of his sacrifice on the cross to save me from my sins rather than anything I could do to save myself. Over the past year, I've realized that I've confused a number of things in my life. I've made unimportant things more important than they should have ever been. I've failed to honor God in my life by consistently making his priorities my own. One example has been disobediently putting off being baptized for years and years. As I've gone through what has been the most difficult time of my life recently, God has demonstrated his faithfulness and steadfast love Christ died on the cross for our sins. We're saved by putting our faith in his work alone, not in our own efforts. I know that God loves me, that his son has saved me from my sins, and that by the power of his Holy Spirit living in me, he can be glorified. To God be the glory. Lauren, have you repented of your sins and do you trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Do you acknowledge that Jesus purchased you by his blood, that you belong to him and that you owe him all of your love, your obedience, and your devotion now and forever? Based on this confession, it's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Then, last, Addison Bradley, if you'll come up. Addison is a senior in high school and. Uh, one very interesting thing is that although she was born and grew up 
here in New Mexico. A year from now, she wants to study marine biology. So she's got a love for the oceans and life within the oceans, which is really cool if you hear her talk about that. One of Addison's uh, favorite verses is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where we read about Jesus as our high priest that is not unfamiliar with our weaknesses, but rather can sympathize with us. So my name is Addison Bradley. I'm 17 years old and a senior in high school. So I have grown up going to church and hearing the gospel regularly proclaimed in my home. I knew a lot about God, Jesus, and the Bible. And Sunday mornings were a routine. I mostly looked forward to seeing all of my friends and eating cookies and maybe getting some candy for saying a memory verse. I knew the right answers, but I didn't know Jesus. I had no hope of ever being able to save myself. I, there was blindness in my sin, and that blindness kept me incapable and unaware of my condition. I was broken, but God. But God, through his grace, confronted me and convicted me of my sin and changed my life. He not only revealed the depth of my sin to me, but showed me his mercy and willingness to forgive me if I repent of my sin and put my trust in him. Because of his holiness, God cannot tolerate my sin, yet he chose to save and love me. I am made alive through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and God opened my heart and allowed me to see this truth. I now have a newfound hope in Jesus and all of his promises. Through the faithful work of gospel-believing ministries, I have grown in my understanding of prayer and the importance of talking to God. Over the past year, I have become more frequent and bold in my prayer life, and I look forward to continual growth in that area and others. I may not have changed on the outside, but I have gone from death to life through Jesus Christ. I have been forgiven and become a child of God. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Addison, have you repented of your sins and do you trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation? Do you acknowledge that he purchased you by his blood, that you belong to him, that you owe him all of your love, your obedience, and your devotion now and forever? Based on this confession, it's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his death, and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, thank you for Jesus. May we think on him and meditate on him, on the cross, on his resurrection, every day, and never grow tired of it. Father, help us to remember all of your benefits, that for those of us who, has, who have called upon Jesus, you have forgiven all of our iniquities, that you have raised us up from the pit, 
that you have crowned us with steadfast love and with mercy. God, we pray that you would protect and watch over the nine who have been baptized this morning. That you would help them, you would cause them to persevere. That they would always remember what they have affirmed to this day. That Jesus purchased them by his blood and they belong to him. Amen. Let us stand and rejoice in his grace. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount of court, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be. Never noticed until today how urgent that song is. Did you pick up on that? 
you can be whiter than snow today. And all you who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? I wonder if there's anybody in here or who's watching that has come to appreciate the weight of debt that they owe to God. They realize that their sins stand between them and a holy God. You can receive grace this moment. You've already heard how to do it. All you have to do is cry out like the servant in that parable. Get on your knees and plead with God for mercy. Maybe just say a prayer right where you are. God, forgive me, a sinner. And he will greet you with compassion. And he will forgive your sins. Don't walk away from this place. You don't know how much time you have left until that day of reckoning. Repent and believe the gospel and you'll be saved. And if you do that, if you've done that, tell somebody. Tell the person that brought you, hey, I think I believed this gospel. Or or tell your mom and dad. Or come up here. We'll have some people up front, like Drew said, and you can come talk to us. Or if you have questions about this, please just, just respond. Don't walk away without responding. And if you have believed this gospel, if you've been forgiven, then be forgiving. I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you about this book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. I basically lifted half of my applications right out of this book, okay? This is a very helpful book, especially when it comes to the complexity of forgiveness. What does it look like to forgive? What does it look like to be reconciled with someone that you have a conflict with? So you can get this book online, or you can come take my copy if you need it. But be a forgiving people. So I leave you with this charge from Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Amen.